Bob? Peter. Okay, let's patch back in. Hello, everyone? Yep. Are we back in the session? Okay, great. Uh, let's get started. Uh, this is the Ontolog Invited Speaker Session of uh, 2005, September 9th. And we are very uh, fortunate today to have Miss Elisa Kendall from Sandpiper Software presenting uh, the subject, the model-driven semantic web, emerging technologies and implementation strategies. Uh, before I introduce, uh, th this is Peter Yim, co-convener of the Ontolog Forum. Uh, before I introduce our speaker, maybe we could uh, go around and have the attendees introduce themselves uh, quickly. So let's go down the attendee list on the wiki page. Uh, Bob? I'm Bob Smith. I'm uh, involved in emergency medical care, emergency response, and the ontologies that allow interoperability between organizations. Okay. Uh, Roy? Yes, my name is Roy Roebuck. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, my name is Roy Roebuck. Uh, I've been playing around uh, enterprise architecture for a long time, but uh, I've actually been doing dealing with ontologies for almost as long, uh, informally at first and then uh, more formally recently. Um, I just finished a, a project called Continuity of Communications Enterprise Architecture uh, for the U.S. Federal Executive Branch, and the architectural approach I was using based on and its underlying repository is based on a MOF-like uh, meta schema. Uh, and we're using a metadata, a MOF-like metadata repositories. I'm very interested in seeing OWL and, uh, and uh, MOF and other uh, related technologies come together. Fantastic. Thanks, Roy. Oh, uh, someone uh, who's sort of like at the airport or something, uh, could you please mute your line? It looks like he's done that. Uh, uh, Brent Jr.? Yes, Brand, Brand Neiman Jr. from SCIC supporting uh, the data reference model and the IC community. Greg? Uh, this is Greg Mack from SAC. Um, I have worked also worked for a number of years in the, uh, the, the general areas of ontology management and uh, semantic web style technologies, uh, including uh, several years at uh, OMG. Uh, with OMG in the, in the late 90s. Um, currently, we're working with large-scale um, analytic collaboration involving sharing of repositories and uh, polymorphic use of tools. So I'm very interested in, in hearing. And we're also trying to use RDF and OWL and have stories to tell if anybody is interested in listening. Uh, and so I'm interested in hearing what Elisa has to say. Nice to have you with us, Greg. Uh, Bill? Bill McCarthy? Yeah, Bill is probably offline uh, on the road now. Uh, Bill McCarthy is an uh, accounting professor from Michigan State University and one of the uh, staunch supporter and the core uh, team member at Ontolog. Uh, Paris? 
Hi everybody, I'm Paris Bingham from Sun Microsystems. I'm a senior staff slash principal engineer within the customer network services organization of Sun, which is a sort of a subgroup of our larger software org. Um, our group is fairly recent to Sun. We were formed about a year and a half ago. And uh, I've been spending a lot of my time looking into various ways we can use information modeling, uh, model-driven architecture, um, things like that to help help us put together this customer network vision. Um, and part of that is, you know, especially interesting for me, is how do we use uh, some of the semantic technologies to add more richness to that information model and information model architecture? Great. Thank you. Uh, Carlos? Uh, yes, this is Carlos Aguirre. I uh, work in customer network service also, and I spend um, a lot of my time trying to convince Paris that Al's the way to go for managing the information model. Uh, I, I actually went out of order because I was looking at the wrong page. <laughs> Sorry, but, but that, that actually worked out well, so we might as well uh, cover the other uh, Sun colleagues as well. Uh, Henry? You might be on mute, Henry. Henry's story? He can't hear you. Uh, maybe we'll move on to Rich Long. Um, I'm Rich Long with uh, Sun Microsystems, and uh, I work with uh, Paris and, and Carlos. Um, we've been you know, doing semantic web for a number of years here with uh, Sun's metadata initiative, and uh, that's what uh, Carlos and I have been focused on for the past four or five years. Fantastic. Uh, Pat Heinick? Hi, I'm Pat Heinick. I'm a senior enterprise architect at the Environmental Protection Agency, working with John Sullivan on enterprise architecture at the agency. Also belong to the uh, CIO Council's Architecture and Infrastructure Committee on Governance Subcommittee that's looking at uh, FEA reference model maintenance. Um, particularly interested in the semantic technologies and try to act as a spokesperson in that arena uh, to advocate uh, how those uh, can work and uh, make a case for it. So, Thanks, Pat. We need that support. Uh, Frank Hotel. I work at the National Cancer Institute. I'm responsible for uh, running the services here that provide uh, vocabularies and ontologies to uh, the various network infrastructure of the Institute and some outside organizations as well. We use uh, OWL uh, currently as a distribution media for one of our terminology products, uh, and we're in the process of uh, investigating moving to actually producing that particular ontologic product using uh, Protege OWL. Uh, I guess that's about all I have to say. Cassidy? Yeah, hi. I work at MITRE. Um, I'm particularly concerned with ontologies generally and um, the structure of the upper ontology in particular as a mechanism for um, in, uh, enabling interoperability among multiple main ontologies. Thanks, Pat. Uh, Anders? Hi. Uh, Anders Tell from Financial Toolsmith in Stockholm, Sweden. Um, interested in enterprise architecture and business collaboration. I'm also involved in UNC FACT and trying to revive the architecture process there. We will start 
uh, in Lyon in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm also interested in current and emergent uh, technologies for, for that purpose. Thank you, and just calling all the way. Uh, Michael Maximilian. Hi, um, Michael Maximilian or Max. Um, I am a research staff member at uh, Almaden Research Center, IBM Almaden Research Center, and I'm part of the Almaden Services Research Group. And uh, one of my many projects is uh, services um, or semantic web services, and trying to apply that to our services business to handle a lot of the integration issues and so on that we face. I'm also part of the team pushing uh, services science management engineer and engineering and uh, theory uh, knowledge management is a key aspect of this and using ontology is this. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Brand? Yes, uh, Brand Neiman with the Environmental Protection Agency and Chair of the uh, Semantic Interoperability Community of Practice under the Federal CIO Council. Thank you, Brand. Uh, several people had join us since. Uh, could, if you have not introduced yourself, could you uh, announce your name first? Anyone? Um, well, Henry Story. Henry Story, I'm okay. Off. Henry. I've gone offline. I'm, uh, I'm in Zurich currently speaking from um, a cafe uh, with internet and uh, using Skype. So. Okay. Um, well, um, <coughs> I'm uh, working for Sun Microsystems and um, uh, on the uh, on a Babelfish uh, blog editor, and I've been working on the, um, uh, the um, uh, RSS, uh, looking at mapping uh, uh, OWL in, into Java with um, Java 5 annotations, and it looks like a very um, a very easy thing to do. Great. Thank you. Uh, anyone else who's online we haven't covered? If not, I would uh, take pleasure uh, to introduce our speaker today. Uh, our, we, we are fortunate to in, uh, be inviting uh, Ms. Elisa Kendall to speak for us. Uh, Elisa is the CEO of Sandpiper Software, which she founded in 1995. Uh, Elisa has 20, over 25 years professional experience in the design, development, and deployment of enterprise-scale information management systems for communication, high-tech manufacturing uh, applications uh, with a focus on information interoperability. And over the last five years, she has been instrumental in bridging emerging technologies from professional software engineering disciplines, such as the OMG's model-driven architecture methodology, uh, generally uh, known as MDA, which provides a basis for automating metadata management and on knowledge representation and reasoning technologies. Uh, she is the principal architect for Sandpiper's UML-based knowledge representation, ontology analysis, and reasoning architecture, and has developed rigorous methodologies for domain assessment and ontology design and development. Uh, her formal training is in situation semantics, coupled with extensive systems integration experience uh, that led to Sandpiper's innovative approach. Uh, Elisa also sent us uh, her latest work, which was uh, is submitted 
OMT, which is the current version of the ODM, I mean the ontology definition meta model, uh, which people would be able to find uh, on this session page as well. So without much ado, I would like to call upon Ms. Kendall to present her talk. Thanks Alicia. very much, Peter. Um, so just to give you a, a little bit more background on um, how I got involved in this work, um, in, up until the early 90s, I was a ground systems data processing software engineer at Lockheed Martin here in Sunnyvale. And our primary focus was on communication systems uh, between the ground and satellites, between uh, satellites and between uh, aircraft and ground systems primarily. And so we did a lot of networking, uh, network management, and building in capabilities that thankfully a lot of infrastructure now provides for us rather than having to invent it as we go along. Um, while I was at Lockheed, I did a lot of traveling. And one of the things that happened was I discovered I had an ear for a language, which surprised me. So um, in between trips and when I came back at one point, I did um, attend Stanford and, and get a master's in formal linguistics um, in situation theory under a guy called Stan Peters. And um, a lot of the work that was going on at the time was a precursor to the development of uh, KIF or the Knowledge Interchange Format in Mike Genesaret's logic group at Stanford. Um, so that's my background coming into this. Um, I took a hiatus when the aerospace industry kind of slowed down a bit in the early 90s and went to a supply chain company called Aspect Development, um, which was acquired, I think, in the late 90s by I2 Technologies. And one of the problems we were trying to solve at the time was actually related to some of the work that uh, Sun has done more recently, um, having to do with how you reconcile and share electronic designs across the enterprise. And we ended up being involved in a DARPA project that led to my launching this business, um, having to do with creating a design library so that our government customer and ultimately Lockheed could share um, satellite designs across the enterprise. And as we were working on this, Lockheed had just identified what they thought was perhaps a $10 billion business opportunity, which was to get really heavily involved in commercial satellite business. So this would have been the early to, I mean, the mid to late 90s. And they saw an opportunity on projects such as Astrolink, Teledesic, some of the Iridium things that were going on. They wanted to go after some of that business. But the problem that they had was from the time they got a design request for a satellite until the time they could launch a vehicle with the satellite on it, was at least 30 months and likely longer. And in order to address the opportunity in the commercial business, they had to reduce the designs and, and time to launch cycle to 12 months. So cutting it into third 
which was a tremendously daunting task for them. They spent a lot of time thinking about what they were going to do, and among the approaches they intended to take to cut the cycle time uh, were a tremendous amount of virtual prototyping, um, also a lot of uh, standard interface deployments so that they could do what they called model year architecture, kind of like the automotive industry does, where you could plug and play components into your designs as those components evolve, but not have to change the entire bus structure. The third thing that they wanted to do was to be able to share design information across the corporation so that people didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And they asked me to come in and look at how they could accomplish that. And one of the things that we were expecting to see was a lot of sort of not invented here syndrome, people not wanting to use other people's designs because they didn't understand them, um, and all of that sort of thing. And it turns out that wasn't the biggest problem. Uh, the biggest problem they had was that the guys who had originally been RCA, who were working in Camden, New Jersey, who have um, whose, whose new building sits in front of a building with a stained glass window that has a dog and a Victrola in it, if you can imagine that. Um, those guys were RCA and then General Electric, and then they were Martin Marietta, and then they were Lockheed Martin. And if they were talking about how to do what, uh, in my simpleton way, I call steering a satellite, they would describe that as guidance, navigation, and control. And if they searched for all the design information in their libraries on guidance, navigation, and control, they'd get back everything that they had done, and they'd get back some of the work that was done by the division they just acquired from Loral, and they'd get back some of the work that was done by a manufacturing division that was part of Lockheed in Florida. But they wouldn't get anything that was done on the West Coast because in the organizations in Sunnyvale that had always been part of Lockheed, um, they called steering a satellite attitude control. And the term attitude control and the term Guidance, navigation, and control are related and are overlapping, but are not identical from an engineering perspective. So the problem that they had was this huge terminology issue and how they could reconcile uh, components of designs where there was overlapping technology, but not a good or perfect fit. So this would have been 1997, 98. I started looking for some technology that could help with just the minimal terminology re resolution and things like acronym explosion, which were a horrific problem within Lockheed Martin and I think are rampant in aerospace and probably in government. Um, and I'm actually running into it more and more in commercial entities now, too. So um, acronym explosion was just a huge problem in and of itself. And so they were looking at ways of resolving terminology, of getting people to align on terminology, and they recognized from the outset that having people agree on terminology wasn't going to solve the problem, at least not at the sort of rich level that they needed. So we started working with the Stanford Knowledge Systems Laboratories, who I remembered from my um, situation semantics days, and looking at ways to apply 
knowledge representation to the problem of terminology resolution. That led to development of a prototype for um, kind of ontology alignment and term mapping that we built out in the late 90s, um, and that's essentially what launched my business. After we'd gotten into that for a little while, we discovered that the harder problem wasn't going to be could we kind of match up the terms if we had all the information, but <clears throat> how do you represent it in a way that people can get their arms around it and don't have to write KIF? So we then walked down the path of finding ways of visually describing what was in an ontology. I thought perhaps at the time that OMT, which was one of the precursors to UML, was a potential for that. We started talking with people at uh, what was then Rational Software on whether or not we could use their tools for describing ontologies. Um, and I hooked up with a guy who was one of the original Rose developers, and he joined us, and then we were off to the races. So that's kind of how we went from KIF to looking for something, some graphical or visual way of representing the kind of knowledge that we needed to describe without requiring people to write heavy-duty logic statements. And that's what got me interested in the model-driven uh, architecture approaches that have just recently come together at the OMG. So if you would step onto slide two, please. Yep. <coughs> Thank you. So MDA is essentially a set of technologies that kind of distills a number of standards that the OMG has been developing for the last 10 years. Um, it is actually the metadata standard, um, or at least one large component of it, is sort of the metadata architecture um, that we depend on. And all of that is built on a standard called the Meta Object Facility, or MOF. MOF is actually a subset of UML, which is designed specifically to allow you to create um, sorry about the interruption. To allow you to create all sorts of meta models of a variety of different schemas or languages or other kinds of artifacts, and then gives you facilities for mapping those um, to one another and doing transformations across them in order to uh, support synchronization support interoperability, and those kinds of, of activities. So MOF, which is, again, this subset of UML, is the metadata architecture for MDA. Um, it builds on not only the UML specifications, but um, other UML profiles and standards that are available from the OMG. It lets you define things like database schemas, process models, um, rules, uh, API definitions, all sorts of things that you would want to describe with a schema-like capability. Um, MOF provides those facilities and uh, supports automation of your data management based on those meta models. 
Um, uh, next slide, please. Number three. Number three. So MOF tools use these meta models to generate code for you. And the artifacts that you can generate range from Java APIs to XML schemas to uh, Corba objects and other things that you might want as bits and pieces of interfaces um, to your metadata. So what that includes are all the accessors, all of the transformation capabilities. Um, it lets you abstract details for all of those things so that you can then have much better interoperability between tools that leverage that metadata. Um, there are a number of tools available in the marketplace, um, primarily MOF repository based um, for helping you accomplish this. Um, some of the players you may have heard of recently include um, the Enterprise Service Bus and Enterprise Information Integration companies like Metamatrix, SchemaLogic, Adaptive. Um, there, there are a number of them that have very serious MOF repositories. The uh, Open Source Eclipse framework includes an Eclipse modeling capability, or EMS, Eclipse modeling framework, which is built on MOF. That's actually open source and free for use. Um, IBM's strategy has been to build their latest incarnation of uh, Rose, which is called IBM, Rational Software Architect or Software Designer. Um, those capabilities are all built on top of EMF and MOF repositories to facilitate interoperability among things that share or have access to these MOF metamodels and the transformations among them. Can I ask so, a question at this point? Pardon me? Uh, this is Pat Cassidy. Can I ask a question? Sure. About MOF. Uh, I have seen MOF models, specifically the MOF model for the CMI, which under no circumstances could be uh, transformed directly into executable code. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what subset of MOF you're talking about, and do you have examples of MOF models which actually can be used to generate code? Um, I do, Pat, but um, let's hold that thought to the um, to we get to the Q&A section there. The first place I would point you is to the document that we produced, the ODM document. Um, we actually have a number of meta models in there that we've used Eclipse to generate Java interfaces and the XMI code for. Um, and we've been successful in doing that, and that's actually helped us vet some of the bugs in the ODM meta models themselves. So, um, and there are a number of other profiles available also on the OMG website that are much less, um, much more stable, let's put it that way, than the ODM is at this point, um, that you could actually download not only the specifications, but the meta models themselves, the XMI-related code, the Java APIs in some cases, and use those to play with. I can also point you at uh, yeah. other resource people who can give you even more information about some of that stuff. Yeah, this is important stuff if it works. Um, so I, I'd like to see more about it. Yeah, there's also a really good book. Um, 
Uh, there, there's a really good book by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Frankel, on model-driven architecture. And Peter, if you'll remind me, I will give you the reference to it for Amazon, so that people who are interested in the in the MDA book and on uh, MOF metal modeling can at least take a look at Dave's book. Okay. All right. So, um, in any case. But what's happened is that MOF had, was set out just as this little sort of subset of UML. And now there's a whole series of specifications that are being built around it that are currently walking their way through the standardization process at the OMG. One of those that's critical to this image on slide three um, is called MOF QVT, or Query View Transformations. And it's specifically a standard for allowing you to um, represent not only queries that you might make, but those transformations between metamodels. And it captures information that might be considered lossy between them if there is such information. So for example, in the ODM, we're talking about a number of different modeling paradigms. Um, ranging from very rich knowledge representation languages to um, things like topic maps, which is also a rich standard but very different from uh, RDFS and OWL or uh, Common Logic or even different from UML. And in most cases, we've been able to do a fairly decent job of the mapping, but periodically you run into things that don't fit or that are lossy. QVT is designed to allow you to capture that lossy information and regain it on the other end if you do forward and reverse engineering. Um, that specification is not yet complete, but we're starting to work through representing the transformations between our meta models and the ODM in what's called the QVT relations language, which is a subset of the broader QVT specification. And it's working. It's not trivial. The spec uh, lacks a lot in terms of the how-tos and the um, sort of language behind it that would help you understand it a lot more quickly. Um, but having said that, we've, we've had good relationships with the guys who are developing that spec, and so we're actually helping them vet it as we go through this process. So. Um, if Pat, Pat in particular, but for, for everyone who's interested in this sort of transformation approach, especially between metamodels and the models that are implemented using those metamodels, MOF QVT is the right way to do that. And I believe the next iteration on the revised um, submission specification, the one that's going to the architecture board, should be posted now to the OMG website and should be available for review by people. Um, and comment. I think they're supposed to present it next week, in fact, at the OMG technical meeting. So I will try to find a link to that. And, and again, Peter, if you can take a quick note and remind me, I will um, sure. I'll forward you that link as well. OK, next slide. So this is what it sounds like I don't really need. Everybody seems very familiar with the semantic web and what it's um, intent is and what some of the standards that make up the semantic web are. Uh, again, my 
um, sort of perspective was coming from a more formal logic, first order, uh, KISS perspective, having been working with the Stanford Knowledge Systems Laboratories. Um, and in some ways, the figure on the left, the kind of um, semantic bus, for lack of a better term, makes a lot more sense to me than the so-called wedding cake on, on the right because really what you're talking about is how to facilitate exchange of these semantics and um, an approach for integrating that information with other things in your uh, information infrastructure. So um, I have a figure later in the, in the talk that will give you an idea of where we think some of these things play. But having said that, I think thinking about it in terms of the figure on the left has worked better for me than thinking about it in terms of the wedding cake, even if that gives you kind of an idea of some of the different um, components of the architecture of uh, OWL in particular. Slide five, please. Okay. Is there? So um, this slide is one that I use typically to make sure that I'm on the same page with people more than anything else, because a lot of people have different ideas in their head about what an ontology is or isn't. And the slide was developed, I'm, I'm sorry Mike's not on the phone with us, the slide was developed at AAAI in 1999 by uh, Deb McGinnis and Chris Welty from IBM, Mike Ushold from Boeing, Michael Gruninger, some folks that were in a panel session um, talking about what an ontology is and how they defined it. And people that I've run into, especially business people that are just getting into this, not folks like yourselves who seem to have a much richer background, tend to think of a thesauri or a set of thesauri or a set of taxonomies that are kind of informal hierarchies as being ontologies. And I would argue that what we're talking about here is more formal than that. So formal hierarchies, um, value restrictions, um, being able to refine your constraints so you can de describe things as being the inverse of one another, um, and adding general logic constraints, implications, biconditional kinds of expressions, all that sort of stuff is what I mean when I talk about an ontology, um, as opposed to the sort of more narrow taxonomy or, or catalog view of the world. Um, so just this is just essentially to make sure that, that you all understand what I'm talking about when I use the term ontology. Um, so next slide, please, slide six. So the kinds of projects that I've been involved in and what we believe are some of the driving um, problems you might want to solve include this notion of being able to provide a common vocabulary, but I would say more common virtual vocabulary and definition of the resources, the processes, the services in your enterprise that are going to play in that sort of um, application-specific architecture for using that vocabulary or set of vocabulary components. Um, one good example is a project I'm working on now for um, DARPA, which is um, in defining uh, network protocols and strategies for manipulating those protocols so that you can um, improve network performance under degraded situations. 
So, for example, the ontologies that we're creating for that purpose, yes, there are some general purpose ones that describe processes and events, and we're using NIST's uh, process specification language for that purpose. Um, yes, we also need to be able to describe time, and so we're using Richard Fike's reusable time ontology for that. But from a domain pers uh, perspective, we also need to be able to do things like describe what, an, what network components look like, what internet protocols look like, what network weather looks like, what the applications in the network look like as they're sending packets on the network, a wide variety of things that um, were much more detailed and much more specific to the domain than the sort of high-level vocabulary that we're depending on. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but this is uh, a particularly interesting thing. Now, the DMTS common information model sounds like precisely what you are using or developing or whatever. What's the relationship of your work to that? We've looked at it. It's, it's bigger in some ways than what we needed for this specific project. Um, and so we used things that I think were a component of some of that work. Certainly the... Some of the pieces that we've been leveraging, um, like PSL or like the reusable time ontology, also have been in it. Some of those have been integrated with the standard upper merged ontology that Adam Pease has created, which I think um, may have played a role in that. Um, but we didn't want all of it because we needed to do faster small footprint reasoning. So we took um, the components, only the components that we needed, and have been leveraging those along with things that uh, Stanford's JTP already knew how to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I think our uh, approach from a sort of high level, upper, if you want to call it an upper, or, or I prefer to use the term foundation ontology perspective, were subsets of what people would consider to be a broader upper ontology. We, would, we did not want the whole thing, and we did not want to send reasoning engines down a path looking at stuff that wasn't relevant. One of the big issues on this particular DARPA project is improving performance. So <laughs> we're trying to do as little reasoning as possible to get the biggest bang for the buck. Is your name for that DARPA project? Sapient. Was it Sapient? Sapient, uh, S-A-P-I-E-N-T. Sapient. Yeah. Um, although I doubt that there's very much published about it. Uh, in part because it's relatively new and in part because pieces of it are classified. Mm -hmm. One of the other um, projects that we have been involved in had to do with um, ontology ontology representation for the purposes of policy development. We did some work under Raytheon on a DARPA-XG program, which had to do with uh, policies for being able to use spectrum as a, as a secondary user for next generation communications. And so we were looking for that purpose at some uh, FCC policies and that kind of thing and trying to figure out how you might represent those in a way that you could reason over them. And so we did some work on 
component ontology mapping and alignment in order to be able to integrate policies that might be developed, say, by a military commander in the field based on the situation he's in, and whether or not those could override policies that were, say, defined by either a national or international standards body, under what circumstances they could override those, and things like that. So the, the whole idea of being able to not only define ontologies so that your searches were unambiguous or so that you could reason over them, but also so that you could um, ensure consistency and understand precedence between elements. All of those things have been really important in the applications that we've been working on. So listen on that same theme. Were you able to get down to the regulations underneath the policy for the FCC, for example, and do some heuristic engine work on the business rules or the government rules? We didn't get quite that far. We got to the point where we had some um, very cool examples. One of them I would call um, Saturday Night XG, for example, where you could say, okay, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know that KQED, which is our public broadcasting uh, television channel, goes off the air at a certain time in the middle of the night and doesn't come back on again until 6 a.m. the next morning. And therefore, there is spectrum available between whether it's 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. or whatever that bandwidth is. That would be Saturday Night XG, and you could leverage for free that bandwidth if you're an emergency services provider um, any, any week, any Saturday. And so we did enough analysis to understand some of the reasoning components that we were going to need in our architecture. We started down the path of doing that work and doing some prototyping. And then, unfortunately, our sponsors didn't win phase three. So we never got much farther on doing that analysis. I'm hoping that we'll be able to do more of the same kind of work on Sapient as we build that project out. Does the um, communications spectrum work you do have any relationship to a project called Cognitive Spectrum, do you know? There were folks that were working on both, I think, but I'm not positive. You'd have to check with the DARPA program manager. Okay, thank you. Can I, Peter Yum here, can I suggest we maybe hold off uh, comments that are not directly related to the, the presentation uh, until after uh, Elisa has a chance to flow us through the entire prepared presentation first. Is that okay? Alyssa? Okay, next slide. Slide number seven. Yes, please. Go ahead. Um, Semantic web evolution. Yeah, yeah, my, I'm sorry, I keep getting, I keep getting shut out of the network and having to re-log in. Uh, just a second. Okay, so um, I think most of this you all are familiar with. The RDFS and OWL specs became formal standards um, over a year and a half ago. Um, most of the research in the community now is focused not only on methodology and best practices. Um, I'm participating actually in the Semantic Web Best Practices and Deployment Working Group 
specifically in the ontology engineering and software engineering task forces. Um, there's also a lot of research now going on in query languages and rules. There was a workshop at the end of April I participated in for talking about what we're going to do with regard to rules specifically. Um, and the other area that's getting a lot of attention right now is in semantic web services. And I think those specifications are converging. And they're likely to converge more quickly than the rules will. Um, slide eight, please. Yep. Uh, again, especially with regard to the rules, the, the issues really are around historically people have considered most of these systems to be closed world, and a lot of the reasoning assumptions have been based on that, and um, that a lot of semantic web activity is uh, focused on more of an open world situation. And so, as it turns out, that's not truly the case for the requirements people have been raising for a rules language. So a lot of the folks who are involved in the business rules community or production rules community, um, and even some of the semantic web people who participated in the rules workshop, really appear to be interested in data log capabilities and in negation of failure both of which I consider to be closed world assumptions, as opposed to some of the more open world kinds of capabilities from a rule language perspective. So I think um, they're still getting their arms around what they really want to do there. And it may be at least a year to 18 months before you're going to see anything definitive come out of a rules working group in the W3C as a result. Uh, slide nine, please. So I just want to touch on this really quickly. Um, I was involved in a project um, where we were asked to participate with Vulcan Ventures in their HALO project, whose um, charter was to try to come up with a digital Aristotle, something that you could ask questions of from an education perspective and get real answers back. And as a demonstration vehicle, Vulcan uh, chose three organizations. One that was um, primarily SRI and some Stanford folks. One that was uh, Enterprise, which is a German company that does work in F-Logic. And the third being SciCorp. And each of those or organizations was asked to encode 50 pages of high school chemistry text um, and be able to answer uh, questions that were sufficient to get a, a three on a college entrance AP exam um, in order to pass. And what surprised Vulcan was that they all passed at the end of the day. They had only four months to do the work. Um, SRI's answers were the best, and that's primarily because they used PhD chemists to do the encoding. Um, as it turned out, um, the F-Logic systems were the fastest in responding. But all three were able to do so at an AP level three, which um, was sufficient for Vulcan to decide to throw more money at it. Now there are another set of people working on the next level of that experiment. Um, but the telling thing that came back from that work that it was the cost 
of encoding this knowledge and of building out the ontologies and knowledge bases to support it, which turned out to be $10,000 per page of chemistry text. Way too high for us to see adoption anywhere near soon by the uh, commercial community. But what I personally believe and have been sort of carrying a banner for the last several years to um, try and make happen is that combining MOF and MDA technologies with the knowledge representation capabilities can dramatically reduce that cost. I think it can also increase the likelihood of your success, and I think it increases the availability of the knowledge representation technologies to a much broader uh, potential community of users. Uh, next slide, please. Slide 10. So what MDA does from a knowledge representation person's view um, is what you have is enterprise integration or information integration solutions that re rely on these strict um, XML taxonomies and agreements on those in order to share information. Modifying those agreements is very expensive. and Right now, the reasoning and analysis that is done primarily to align vocabularies against these things is done by people, not by machines. Um, and machines really only display syntactic information um, and syntactically grounded models and informal text describing those, the semantics of those models in an MDA world. Um, to their users. And without the formal semantics, the machines can't help you with the alignment process or with any of the semantic transformations. Um, but MOF and MDA do provide the basis for automating all of the syntactic stuff and give you what I would call the pipes for screwing the information together. Um, next slide, please. Slide 11. So what MOF does is it streamlines all of the mechanics of managing models as XML documents or Java objects or Corba objects. And the knowledge representation piece supports reasoning about those resources so that you can perform the semantic alignment um, between different vocabularies or, or policies or terminologies. Um, it lets us do the consistency checking and model validation, the business rule anal analysis, lets us answer questions like those chemistry questions over resources that we couldn't answer previously, and supports policy applications like the work we were doing on XG. Um, but the knowledge representation technologies don't help you with the mechanics of managing the metadata or um, moving it from one place to another. So what I believe firmly is that the, the technologies are complementary and that the sum of the two is even bigger than either one of them alone. Slide 12, please. So this is just a quick overview of, what, of sort of the, the basics of MOF repositories and what some of the vendors um, actually have in their uh, toolkits. So a number of them build on top of either an integrated MOF repository or set of federated MOF repositories and give you facilities for accessing those. Um, one that I'm very familiar with, which is the adaptive technology, allows you to actually create all sorts of connections between your 
physical, logical, and uh, hopefully soon semantic models of databases, for example, so that you can identify redundancy in those databases, query across them, that sort of thing. Um, you can integrate those with some of your process models. You can integrate them with your um, representations today. That works now. What the piece that we're adding is the ability to integrate on top. Thanks. Uh, slide 13, please. Yep. So when we look to um, build a standard, which we now call the ontology definition meta model, when we look at what we wanted the capabilities of that standard to be, um, in order to get consensus, we did kind of a use case um, analysis for several months, actually. We brought all of the kinds of use cases we could think of to the table and tried to classify them along various dimensions. We looked at things like methodology, what their target usage model was, how expressive they needed to be, how complex they were, how authoritative they were, how much automation people were anticipating, what kinds of metrics they wanted to capture, and came up with this kind of continuum which said what we really wanted to focus on was the area inside the oval um, and to be able to cover basic capabilities inside that oval so that people could be interoperable between their knowledge representation systems and other things in their enterprise architecture uh, in a seamless way. Uh, slide 14, please. So just to give you a quick overview, some of the model dynamics we looked at were with respect to authoritativeness, and that's actually becoming increasingly important now, especially on some of these projects we're working on. Um, the least authoritative ontologies tend to be broader and shallowly defined. The more authoritative they are, the narrower they tend to be, and the more deeply defined they tend to be. Um, one thing that, that wasn't apparent to us going in was that sources of structure may be different depending on your application or usage, whether that structure comes from the information itself, which evolves sometimes quickly, or whether that structure is something that you define from a top-down perspective and impose on your ontologies and knowledge bases. Um, how formal they are is, is kind of um, a given, whether the models um, and ontologies are static or fluid, whether the instance data is static or fluid. Um, and both cases uh, are things that we saw in our set of usage scenarios. Uh, slide 15, please. We also looked at, at the application characteristics um, related to the things that we wanted to do with the ontologies once we'd been able to build them. And that included things like how much control you had over the information once you deployed it, um, how dynamic the applications themselves were, how loosely or tightly coupled your resources were that were the focus of queries and that sort of thing that leveraged the ontologies. Um, where your integration focus was, was it on information, which was probably the lion's share of the cases, or was it on application integration, um, and what your lifecycle usage uh, looked like. 
slide 16, please. Some of the things that occurred as we were working through the process of trying to align UML with some of the knowledge representation uh, formalisms were that UML doesn't really have an underlying model theory and it's not nearly as formal in some ways as our knowledge representation languages are. Um, that was certainly our thought going in. As it turns out, there is much more formal um, definition to UML2 than prior versions, um, but it still doesn't have a real model theory. Um, in ontological work, our elements often cross meta, meta levels from the UML perspective, or they apply at multiple levels. Things can be classes at one level and at an individual at the same time in your KR world, whereas that has traditionally been prohibited in the UML world. Um, for us, being able to reuse complex relationships and axioms was critical. Um, that's not nearly as easy to do, in my view, in a UML environment. Um, one of the things that was clear to us is that we wanted to be able to specify individuals without having to define the classes that they are members of. And this was something that UML people kept blinking at me when I would say it. Um, so, slide 17, please. Yes. So, among the things that we considered um, critical from a design perspective, we wanted to be able to forward and reverse engineer both the sort of resources we use, the source materials for developing ontologies and the ontologies themselves. We wanted to be able to support ontologies that were expressed in description logics, if you could use description logics reasoners, and more expressive things such as alpha or common logic based on the requirements of the applications we were considering. Um, when we discussed whether or not we could limit ourselves to developing a UML profile or whether we needed to develop meta models for these languages, and as it turned out, both were required because of the semantic distinctions between the knowledge representation uh, paradigms and UML. And metamodels really are concerned with representing the abstract syntax, where we depend on the model theoretic language semantics. Not, we're not inventing new languages, and we're not inventing new semantics here. We're only representing the abstract syntax of the languages we're modeling. Profiles in UML help you use UML notation to create ontologies and to generate what in a UML or MDA environment is sort of code. In our case, would be OWL or common logic or a topic map, for example, um, but don't precisely represent the abstract syntax necessarily. So the combination is what we ended up um, deciding on. And we also decided we could not extend the UML to metamodel because that actually added unintended semantics. So instead, we created a, a set of new metamodels for representing the languages that were important to us. Then we thought about whether or not we could create one core ODM metamodel that everything else was connected to. And as it turned out, there were very few obvious commonalities. 
So things like namespaces, maybe. But other than that and the notion of a named element, there was very little commonality uh, in the end across the languages we're modeling. And our goal was really to be true to the abstract syntax and, and formal semantics of the language we were modeling without adding any complexity or unintended semantics. Next slide, please. Slide 18. So here is where we ended up. This is what the ODM looks like today. It includes six um, meta models that use essentially the EMOF uh, subset of the meta object facility, uh, five of which are normative. So we have uh, meta models for RDFS um, and OWL. We have a meta model for common logic, uh, one for topic maps, and one for uh, ER modeling. Um, the topic maps and common logic meta models are directly related to the ISO specifications. RDFS and OWL have been developed in conjunction with the language authors. Um, and the DL, non-normative DL model, is simply informative for those people who would like to understand what an A box or T box is. We used the purple description logics book to help us create that as an educational vehicle. So that's actually in an appendix in the ODM. Uh, slide 19, please. Uh, some of the other issues we ran into as we were doing this work, um, we thought about trying to do some subclassing from one meta model to another, as I mentioned. And as it turns out, the best approach was for the OWL meta model to depend on RDFS, as you might imagine, but all of the others are related to one another through mappings that are now non-normative. Um, Elisa? Yes. Uh, I, this is Brand Neiman, Jr. I do have a quick question about the previous slide, uh, or just yes, a comment. Um, you mentioned in an earlier slide you were going to, you were, you the beginning of the bridging point was XML, and I don't see if you're mapping a meta model for XML in this slide. We have not, and the reason for that is that we felt that it wasn't, in and of itself, a knowledge representation or conceptual modeling formalism. Although maybe you could argue that. Um, with regard to XML schema. Um, but we do have a representation. So the meta models themselves can be serialized as XMI, which is XML Metadata Interchange Standard from the OMG. And you can use XSLT transformations on the XMI to go back and forth between um, the different meta models if you really wanted to do that. There are more efficient ways to do so, but but it is XML, and what we're serializing out is the XML metadata interchange format. Okay, great. Okay, so Back to nineteen. Yeah, so a couple of the other things we ran into, and you'll see this um, specifically in the November version of the specification. Once we've resolved some issues with RDFS and OWL. Um, that namespaces are explicitly represented and that we map among them in the various ODM meta models, um, that they are global, 
in RDSS and L and in common logic and in topic maps, and they are defined at the package level in UML and MOF. So that was one mismatch we ran into. Um, another, a lot of people are familiar with the distinction between associations, which are not really standalone entities in UML, and relations and properties in uh, some of the knowledge representation paradigms. You have to define association ends in UML, and what we ended up doing for that was requiring a model library. So we created something similar to OWL thing for RDF and for common logic users uh, in order to make that work. As it turns out, the language authors were much less upset about that than I had anticipated. So for whatever it's worth, that turned out to be less of a big deal than I thought it would be. Um, inheritance of features on relationships that are defined strictly as associations in UML doesn't work very well. So we ended up using UML2 properties and association classes to en enable that. Um, and then in terms of packaging, there are still some issues with how to package RDF, RDF schema, and some of the syntactic elements related to do RDF documents. Um, among the team, so we are still not quite in agreement on that, which is why the spec is still um, going to go through another iteration between now and the end of November. And the other thing that we discovered was that OCL was not rich enough to support the kinds of rules and axioms that we wanted to be able to represent with logic, uh, specifically quantification and uh, variable manipulation were problems, especially when you're talking about common logic capabilities. So we have minimized use of OCL. Uh, next slide, please. Slide 20. So the profiles are a way of providing a standard UML notation for the languages that people can use in UML tools. RDFS and OWL was the highest priority based on the RFP. Um, Topic maps was the next highest priority because there was a European community that asked specifically for that uh, in the OMG. People have asked us, well, what about ER and common logic? Uh, ER does have an existing graphical notation, although there's none that's really a standard. Um, but I think a profile for entity relationship conceptual modeling uh, will be forthcoming in a next generation common warehouse metamodel specification that's just getting underway. Um, common logic was originally intended to represent rules and constraints, and so we thought, well, maybe we don't really need a profile for it. But because of interoperability with other specifications that I'll talk about in a few minutes, um, we will likely provide one through an RFC process um, once the ODM goes into finalization. Uh, slide 21, please. Um, so in terms of the mappings, the final specification will include two-way mappings from UML, topic maps, and ER to RDFS and OWL. A one-way mapping from RDFS and OWL to common logic. We may uh, provide a reverse or lossy mapping from common logic to RDFS and OWL through the RFC process. And we're considering seriously doing the two-way mapping from UML to common logic again through the RFC process, but we need the QVT specification to be more stable before we go forward with that. Um, and in the current version of the spec, you'll see that the mapping representations are pretty ad hoc. Um, 
but our plan is to migrate all of them to QBT as that specification stabilizes. Slide 22. So here is kind of a, a high-level impressionistic view of what we were hoping we could do using our specifications. So essentially, the ODM creates a bridge between UML and any knowledge representation uh, language that's one of the meta models we have, not just OWL, but so that you could use generic UML tools, take a UML model, apply the bridge, and move the um, contents into uh, semantic web tools for further refinement. Um, I'm not one of those persons who believes that any UML model makes a good ontology. Um, the opposite is actually true, and I've been working with Stanford to come up with some tool ideas for helping to facilitate that process of identifying things that don't work, um, in, especially in software component models. But uh, having said that, being able to move seamlessly from one paradigm to the other is what we're all about, and then having tools that allow you to refine the contents to make them in, you know, to refactor them into decent ontologies is what we're talking about here. Not saying that any old UML model makes a great ontology by any stretch of the imagination. Um, next slide, please. Slide 23. Yep. So I do want to spend a minute on this. This is an architecture we developed for Delta Airlines uh, in early 2000. I did some work with Accenture. Um, supporting some requirements for the maintenance, repair, and overhaul team at Delta, who are looking at moving from Fox Pro databases and paper in the hangar to something much more effective in terms of being able to manage the configuration of any aircraft at any point in time. And, I mean, at the time, it took them 60 days to determine what parts were on the plane if, heaven forbid, it went down. And they felt that that was wholly inadequate, and they were one of the best in the industry at the time. So what we did was we came up with an architecture for them that allowed them to con seriously consider separating their information infrastructure from the business logic and from their process logic and from their infrastructure so that they could manage the configuration of any aircraft um, from a software perspective just as you would the hardware component designs um, with a vault kind of capability, with data services that were very specific with regard to maintaining configuration and all that sort of thing. And we even considered at the time putting a third black box on airplanes that managed the configuration of the aircraft and all of its parts at any moment on the plane itself, in addition to on the ground. Um, I don't think they've gone forward with that idea, but having said that, the, after the airplane industry went through such an ordeal over the last five years, it's unclear to me that how much of this has actually been implemented. Um, in terms of policy administration and context services and their process logic layer, we were thinking of applying the semantics to facilitate sharing uh, configuration information with their business partners. So Delta, for example, participates in arrangements with Air France, Air Mexico. Um, they're partnered with 
uh, Singapore, I forget. There's a number of different airlines around the world that they're partnered with, and they do maintenance for those. Alitalia is another one, I think. They do maintenance for those companies on their airplanes when they land in the U.S., just as those airlines do maintenance for Delta planes when they land in Europe or in the Far East. And so the idea was that you would want to maintain configuration integrity no matter what company you're a part of and no matter where your airplane lands. And so some of the semantics we were planning to incorporate were to facilitate that process. Um, and again, it required strict configuration management of the aircraft components at the same time as, as it required process logic that understood the semantics of the company who was doing the work. Um, next slide, please, 24. So just on the status of the ODM, going back to that briefly, um, we've been through several revision cycles on the specification. Um, I mentioned sort of the different meta models that are included in the spec. Um, we posted a revised submission on August 22nd to the OMG site for those of you who are members and can get access to it. And I think the link I gave to Peter uh, is accessible externally also. Yes. Um, there will be another revised submission posted in November, and uh, we hope that we'll get to adoption vote in the December Burlingame meeting. So if that happens, then the spec will go into finalization from that point forward. Uh, slide 25, please. Yes. So this is just an idea of how you might use the ODM to work with other MOF tools or other tools in your environment to um, take advantage of the formal semantics. So suppose that you have a UML tool that supports the ODM. You can then generate XMI to link the semantic models with your conceptual, um, logical, and physical database models inside of a MOF repository. You can then use those links for additional query planning and business intelligence. You can refine some of the mappings between those various models and then interchange that back with your UML tool to produce uh, additional semantics. You can use the actual native knowledge representation capabilities to find inconsistencies in your models to evaluate um, policies to create additional um, linkages between the models. Um, and going back and forth, we think you can actually find redundancy in database schemas and be able to reconcile um, eliminating some of that redundancy in your organization. Uh, slide 26, please. Um, some of the related standards work I want to touch on, and then I think I'm going to close so that we can go to questions, and you, you are free to um, ask me anything about the presentation or about the, the material that, that's added at the end. But there are several related standards in the OMG. That work is going on concurrently, and some of it will be acted on next week in our technical meeting in Atlanta. Um, in the business enterprise integration group or task force, there's work going on on a standard called business semantics for business rules. And this is essentially a kind of quasi-English for representing rules in a business. 
um, the specification that's emerging is actually called the Semantics for Business Vocabularies and Rules, or SBVR. Um, and as of the last two or three months, it now depends on the ODM's common logic meta model for their logical grounding, uh, which I'm very excited about. So what that means is that we can create additional mappings between the business semantics and um, native, more native knowledge representation um, languages through common logic. There is also work going on in the OMG in a production rules representation. So production rules companies include folks like Sarah Isaac, iLog, uh, Haley Enterprise, some of the companies that are doing work in financial analysis tools um, and that sort of thing, and also business intelligence tools uh, fall into the production rules category. And they have an emerging standard. There's a presentation on that also next week. And uh, we are in discussions specifically with some of the folks from Fair Isaac to relate that specification also to common logic. So that would create the bridge between the production rules representation, the semantics for business vocabularies and rules, and our different um, knowledge representation paradigms all through common logic. Um, mappings between uh, those specifications and also to express which is a process modeling paradigm, um, are planned. And some of this work will be done in the OMG, and some of it will be um, fed back to the ISO community through the PASS process. Um, so those are some of the things going on at OMG. Uh, slide 27, please. Yes. Just to give you a feeling for how that plays against the uh, sort of broader set of OMG framework uh, standards. So if you look at this sort of Zachman framework and say, OK, where do these things apply, the lion's share of OMG standards have been in the sort of common logic, EDOC, which is enterprise distributed object computing um, kinds of standards, some profiles for enterprise application integration, all of the sort of CORBA work. Um, now there's some more work going on in the in the web-based stuff, also related back to EDOC, and we see the ontology definition meta model work applying up at the top across all these different dimensions, and then on the motivation side in terms of the why and trying to figure out how certain things come about and in terms of policy evaluation. That's where the semantics for business vocabularies and rules falls. That's where the production rules work falls, and sort of in that far right area. And again, you can see that there's overlap with those in the ODM. Slide 28, please. Yes. In the ISO community, there is work going on on metadata registries, which is ISO 11179, for those of you who are, who are familiar with it, uh, a framework for metamodel interoperability, which is based on MOF QVT. Um, is also going on in the ISO community. The week after next, I'm actually participating in a working meeting uh, in Toronto to attempt to reconcile uh, 11179-19763 and the ODM work we are doing. And a lot of that has been spurred on by a program uh, sponsored by the DOD and EPA called XMDR. And I think there's also involvement by National Institutes of Health in that activity. Um, and so 
the XMDR folks have developed owl ontologies, interestingly enough, for ISO 11179. And they're also looking at trying to prototype some of the meta model interoperability framework stuff uh, to see how well it really works and try and vet some of it. Um, and as I mentioned, that liaison meeting is planned for uh, two weeks from today, actually, in Toronto. Next slide, please. So sort of in summary, the standards are converging. Things are starting to come together. There, are, there is a lot of parallel work going on that hopefully will converge on common logic. Um, and what we think is important is that you can leverage a lot of the legacy or uh, just sort of normal business information that's available uh, through your OMG standard stack uh, to ODM linking things like business process models through your MOF environment. Maybe you generate OWL for uh, representation of that linking that allows you to do some reasoning over the OWL and create um, transformation services that allow you to mediate some of your business processes uh, as just one example of how you might use this. Uh, slide 30, please. Um, so again, just as a reminder, MOS really gives you the facilities for syntactic metadata management, whereas the knowledge representation piece provides the semantics, and they are actually complementary to one another. Um, there are a number of ways where we think the technologies can complement each other, and um, that we can build really new capabilities on top of the combination. Um, so again, this is just kind of a review. So slide 31. Um, I believe that the, the knowledge acquisition and creating the semantics is really going to turn out to be the bottleneck. Leveraging your existing assets helps break that bottleneck, and that's why we think that the ODM and standards like it are so important. So um, there you go. And that's what I had to say for the day. I'm sorry it took me so long to get through it. Uh, questions? Lisa, this is Greg Mack from SAC. I enjoyed your presentation very much. Thank you. Um, I have one question to help me understand a little bit more. Uh, you mentioned a couple times that, that you folks are now doing uh, uh, a redundancy detection amongst federated databases. I, I wonder if you could maybe address some of the uh, capabilities and constraints that you've encountered in doing that work? Okay, so we have, um, I will give you some business sort of examples. We're prototyping some work with a company called Adaptive um, for MetLife. So MetLife bought Travelers last year, I think it was last year, and as an example, they acquired, I don't know, 4,000 databases in the process and already had more than that many. And at the time that they acquired Travelers, they had logical models for maybe 25% of their own databases. I'm not sure how many, what the percentage was on the Travelers side. And they had some physical models for some of the databases on both sides. Three quarters of MetLife's databases were in DB2, and a quarter of them were sort of Oracle and other things. Um, I think the Travelers mix turned out to be roughly the opposite of that. But um, the problem they had was that they have databases that are called apples and oranges.
images, and those two databases work together. And I don't know what programmer got away with doing that, but um, they don't know what those databases do. They just know they can't turn them off. <laughs> and they have you know, other databases where people have named columns, column one, column two, column three, column four. No lie. I mean, this really exists out there in the real world. They're trying to figure out how to map these things to one another. So the bigger problem we've had is that you have to do serious data mining to even figure out what's in these things. And you actually have to reverse engineer some of the applications that use them in order to understand what the contents really are. Um, it's not the case um, that you can take the logical and physical models and blindly believe that they actually map to the physical implementation of the database. So I think that you know, what we were hoping was that we could actually take at least a few of these logical and physical models and develop semantics for those and then be able to use that as a basis for developing some serious queries through Adaptive's MOF repository and through other tools we were using around that, whether they were IBM tools or uh, Oracle tools, in order to you know, try to build out some capabilities. And the bottom line was we have to do a lot more data mining, we have to do a lot more data cleaning, and we have to do a lot more um, reverse engineering of software applications before we can get there. Okay, so so you had commented that you, so do you, you have you commented that it's working now? Do you, I mean, well, do you we have do, so we do have some right. So we do have some capability. So some of that was through the adaptive repository. We were able to link. What we were able to do was we were able to get an early version of the of ODM metamodels for RDFS and OWL into Adaptive's repository, we were able to create um, some example ontologies that represented semantics of things they understood. Uh -huh. um, we were able to use those as a basis for linking the meta models to one another inside Adaptive's repository and for creating complex queries across things. That they, so they actually were able to query things through that mechanism that they hadn't been able to query before. So that's what I meant by success. We could actually make queries that we couldn't make previously. Cool. Okay. As a Thank you. Of that. But, um, but having said that, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Okay. Thanks a lot. Elisa, mm -hmm. uh, it's Brand Neiman Jr. I have a question. When you refer to MOF repository, are you referring to a commercial off-the-shelf repositories or repositories that, that uh, support that standard? Uh, and are you familiar with any good ones? Okay, so Adaptive is one. Okay. Adaptive has a commercial product that is a very serious MOF repository. It was, I think some of that technology was originally developed by Unisys, and they spun it off to Adaptive a number of years ago. So Pete Rosetta Adaptive is really very good, and um, he's their chief technology officer, and I can put you in direct contact with him if that would be helpful. Um, another company that has, so the vendors that I know of each have kind of a different focus. So Adaptive has a serious MOF repository. Most of their business has been in financial analysis and now some government work that they're doing. Um, they do not have a production rules or inference capability. Um, and it's unclear what direction they're going to take, but we may work with them to help 
figure out what that architecture needs to look like. Um, another one is schema logic. Schema logic also has a MOF repository. Theirs is not quite as heavy duty as adaptive, but they've been very successful working with IBM on very complex taxonomy representation, faceted search kinds of applications for very large uh, websites and portals. Um, IBM uses them internally for that purpose. So, I mean, they have a very effective solution on the taxonomy and unstructured text side of the equation, whereas adaptive is more focused on the um, structured data, on CWM data warehousing, that sort of thing. Um, a third organization that I'm aware of who fits in this space is called Metamatrix. Metamatrix also has a MOF repository underlying their technology. All three of these companies are MOF compliant. Uh, this and is Roy Hobart. Uh, I just interject here. There's a couple of others that might be useful. One is a company called Mega, and they I think are starting from the IT management uh, foundation and moving up into the the higher levels of uh, use of MOF with different standards. And another one is uh, Agilence. Uh, they have an EA web modeler, which is an ontology-based tool that uh, is, is MOF-compatible, MOF-compliant. But Flashline also, for software asset management, yes. has yeah. a MOF repository that's very good. So, I, I mean, it, each of these companies is focused on a slightly different area, at least the ones I'm familiar with. So, so is there some MOF specification somewhere that can be compiled into a program? I'd love to see that actually in action. Well, there's a MOF repository sitting on every Windows computer and some... Well, yeah, but are, are these compiled? There. I mean, just because your MOF doesn't mean you can be compiled into a program. Well, so it depends on what you want to do with the information. Even using Eclipse EMF, um, you can actually generate Java APIs for your MOF metamodels, as an example. Uh, and you have um, an example, a specific example of, of those which have done that? Um, so IBM, in their uh, latest iteration on their IBM Rational Software Architect, and I think it's Software Data Modeler, have built huge tool bases to replace Rational Rows, ultimately. Um, that are MOF compliant repositories under the covers that are built on Eclipse EMF, which is open source, and that allow you to do reverse engineer Java, Corba, um, IDL, and other um, ADA, um, C++. Um, I'm not sure what other source code languages, but you can reverse engineer sorry, software. You're saying that to take existing source code language and from it make a MOF specification? Yep. Or um, you can take the MOS sort of MOS representation of anything, or UML representation, and uh, generate source code. Also, go both ways, and, and you can do round trip engineering using the IBM tools. So this is IBM. Uh, where's where, where does one find this? On the IBM um, software catalog on their website. IBM Rational, so you want the Rational family of tools on the IBM site, and okay. then it's, under that, it's, I think it's called IBM Rational Software Architect. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll look for that. There may be also information on IBM Developer Works, 
website about it, and you can go to eclipse.org um, slash EMF uh, and look at the Eclipse Modeling Framework, which talks about it as well. And I think there's a book out. I don't remember if it's O'Reilly who published it or um, it might be O'Reilly. who published a book on EMF specifically that talks about how to do this. And then Dave Frankel's book on MDA talks about it as well. And I know Dave Frankel's book you can get on um, Amazon. Yeah, uh, you, you say talks about it, but what it was really um, sort of very, very concrete-oriented in my thinking. And I'd love to see an example of a MOF specification that was compiled into a program. Uh, I guess you say IBM has that somewhere. Yeah, I'm certain that they do. And if you send me an email, yeah. um, just to remind me of exactly what you're looking for, then I'll send it off to a couple of guys I know at IBM and ask them to find it for That'd you. That would be great. Thanks a lot. If you do a Google search on EMF developer works on Google, then you'll get the first result is modeling with Eclipse, you know, model with the Eclipse modeling framework. It's like a three-part series. I'm oh, sorry, you, you do a Google search on what? EMF? EMF space developer works. And then you'll get the articles on uh, developer that I think uh, Elisa was mentioning. Is that EMS or X? F is in Frank. Frank, okay, thank you. Uh, for framework. Okay, EMS, EMS, EMS based developer work gives no hits. Um, I'm, I'm looking at this right now. EMS based developer. Developer works. You have to be on the IBM site to do that search. Oh, actually, on Google anywhere would, would be. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I, I just did that on Google and there's no hits. Um, send me an email and I'll point you at stuff. Yeah, great. Okay, uh, just a uh, for clarification. Uh, would any person asking a question kindly identify himself or herself first? Yeah, also, this uh, questions uh, may be posed either directly to the speaker and better still posted to the forum so that the answers will benefit everybody else in the in the community. Very good. I'd be happy to do that, especially with Dave's book and some of the um, moth-based references, Peter. Yep. Okay, I'm capturing this into the... Uh, uh, into the wiki page as placeholders. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, this is Roy Robach. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing, I have to talk to a lot of people who don't understand uh, uh, very much about ontologies and MOF and, and MDA, and one of the things, and topic maps and related things, and one of the things I'm doing to uh, help perhaps clarify the issue is uh, from an enterprise architecture perspective, because I'm using essentially ontologies as the foundation of our enterprise architecture approach, um, is I'm saying that if people want to think about a book uh, representing the enterprise as a whole, then topic maps are equivalent to the index of the book, back yep. to back. Yep. And uh, the taxonomies that you would build up um, about the subjects within the book uh, would be up in the front. They would be your table of contents. Right. Uh, and then the ontology of the book would essentially be the, the cross-references within the book from one section, one paragraph, one chapter to the next to show how different pieces are related, sometimes even within the same sentence. 
So essentially, um, by using a book metaphor to describe what these technologies provide, I find that people are, are much more acceptant of uh, exploring the technologies and the use of them. Have you, uh, have you used similar analogies in the past? Or I've used exactly that description, as it turns out. Oh, okay. All right. Well, good. Because it's it. I've, I've run into you know. I use the word ontology, and half the room goes to sleep. So, <laughs> if I can explain it in simpler terms that they can grasp mentally and from their experience, then it's much easier to work with. What I would tell you is, what's really, really refreshing for me is that fewer and fewer people are falling asleep. Great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I had said is I am, I'm, I'm actually working uh, an enterprise architecture that's uh, fairly fairly broad across the federal government, um, and uh, the approach I'm using is is being described using the four layer meta model of, of uh, model driven architecture, uh, and the up, and essentially the whole thing is being built as an ontology. Uh, in this case, I'm using a, a mop based tool to. Uh, contain the enterprise architecture, and I'm actually describing the enterprise architecture as a knowledge base, and the framework of the enterprise architecture as the ontology. And when I have uh, to integrate uh, the various uh, department and agency views of their enterprise architecture into a single federal enterprise architecture, uh, I'm describing uh, the model I work with as the upper ontology that integrates all these different. Uh, diverse ontologies or diverse uh, frameworks and architectures together. Is that something you're finding out in the industry right now that's becoming more prevalent? People are beginning to uh, move uh, perhaps enterprise architecture terms into uh, more ontology terms? I've seen some of that. Um, frankly, because of where our funding has come from most recently, uh, for good or bad reasons, we're doing a lot more work on sort of policy-based applications rather than the broader sort of enterprise architecture things. And that's just my business, um, not necessarily what other people are seeing. Um, having said that, I'm also chairing or co-chairing a workshop for the upcoming International Semantic Web Conference in Galway on software engineering. And we got several papers on things like there was one from Top Quadrant, in fact, on the federal enterprise architecture and on their data reference model that a number of you have been working on. Um, so there was a paper going into that workshop on that topic specifically. Um, I believe there were a couple of others. Um, there have been a number of papers I've seen on aspects of enterprise architecture that were exposed as web services, using semantic web services to help um, in that process. And so there are papers on that. Most of the ones I'm seeing tend to be on topics that people think will get other people excited at conferences as opposed to real world nuts and bolts kinds of applications. So um, one other place you might consider um, poking around, there will be in March, and I think the call for papers is still out, um, a conference in San Francisco in follow-up to this year's Semantic Technology Conference um, sponsored by Wilshire Conferences. Mm -hmm. And I think on their website or on the Semantic Arts website, there's currently a call for papers. 
And that one is much more focused on industry applications, on enterprise architecture kinds of applications, on kinds of sun presented sort of, is it razorfish? You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. The, um, some of the RDF metadata architecture work that had been done at Sun last time. I mean, I, I'm suspecting there will be follow-up on that and a number of other uh, industry implementations and um, commercial applications that are coming out at the March conference. All right. Another simplification I use to try and explain some of this stuff uh, to the larger audience of the government is uh, I, I use the analogy or the story that uh, this is Roy Roebuck again. I use the, the story that everyone has architecture uh, in their head. They, they, people since the time of cavemen, since they first started naming things and describing things and relating things to each other and classifying things, uh, they've been building architecture in their head. We're just at the point now in our society where we need to con con to transfer our models, our world models or world views to each other uh, in something other than story and text and, and song and, and pictures. So uh, now we're moving into the standards to essentially convey our worldview from one person to another or one group to another. And that's what all these case tools provide. That's what all these uh, UML and, and, uh, and uh, ontology-based tools is provide. It's just a way to share a worldview so that people can come to common understanding. Is that a, that sound like a valid description to you? Well said, Roy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, yeah. Well, can I, can I I'm having to explain things to people who really don't have a lot of technical depth, so I have to put it in really human terms. <laughs> Can I mention um, uh, a method also for, uh, um, I'm, I'm working on for uh, convincing Java programmers of, of how to move, how to convert Java programmers to uh, semantic web um, um, understanders uh, pretty quickly, and that's so I'm, I, no, Henry Story? And I think it's I just uh, I'm just starting to formalize um, how to annotate uh, Java classes with uh, Java five annotations, and it's very simple. You can just uh, annotate your class with RDF and a URL and your methods that way, and by doing that, you can uh, uh, explain to a Java program. I think within a quarter of an hour, uh, the relationship between a Java class and uh, an OWL ontology. And so by doing that, one removes the fear of ontology because one can just say, um, Sun, uh, Sun and IBM and uh, anybody using Java has already been using ontologies for the last 10 years, so there's nothing really that new about it. And, and going back, this is Roy Robach again, going back to my previous comments, people have been doing ontologies since they spoke the first word. <laughs> they just haven't called it. The training class that, that I've given, um, we only go back as far as Aristotle. We don't go back as far as that. Yeah, the first science being taxonomy, but you had to have words before you could categorize them. Very true. Very true. What I'd be interested in knowing is, is what's the cost of creating a Java class, um, a Java class uh, in uh, in Java to the uh, to Sun and to all the people when they work worked on it. Was it was it ten thousand dollars or was it more? It was probably more, in fact. Boy, I have no way of of knowing that. You need to go to a a big systems integrator. Maybe SAIC has metrics for that sort of thing, or a marketer, somebody who knows how to how to measure that kind of value. And I suspect 
um, what would be more telling is how often a class is reused to understand its real value. Well, I'm speaking about the major libraries that are used. And, 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 and if it's more than 10,000, uh, I think that's a good proof that people will pay more than 10,000 to get the Java, um, to, get the, to, to get something like the Java collection classes, the networking, all of that. If that's more than 10,000, then the fact that uh, doing uh, one page of a book is 10,000 isn't, isn't, in fact, uh, a hindrance if there's a business behind it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you there. I think the point that uh, Vulcan um, came to, though, was that there's a lot of stuff that's not yet codified anywhere um, as conceptual knowledge in a way that you could then uh, reason over it, and that they felt that um, some of the bottleneck in getting people to adopt the technology for better or worse was going to be the cost of doing so if they didn't understand the value of the result. Okay, while, while we are at this, uh, Peter Yim here, uh, of course, at Ontolog, we uh, embrace the open process and hope that we could be uh, developing open standards through an open process. I mean, I, I, uh, your, your work at uh, o, uh, OMG is great, except that uh, there are comments that, I mean, not anyone can participate in OMG while I mean the specifications are open. <laughs> the process isn't quite open. Uh, what do you have to say to that? Or maybe you could help us carry a message uh, back to them. Well, I will certainly see Richard Foley next week, and I'd be delighted to tell him that I have trouble with paying 6000 a year for membership when I'm spending thousands of dollars to contribute my time to developing his specifications. So, you know, you pay for the privilege of being able to work on these things. It seems like an odd model, I agree. Um, I, I think the, the fact that it is an industry consortium instead of um, sort of more of an international standards body, one of the benefits or um, detractions, depending on how you look at it, is that companies are willing to put some resources onto things if they have to pay for it. Maybe they see more value in it. Um, unclear, but for whatever it's worth, companies like IBM, HP, Sun, um, and Oracle, and many others are actively involved in some of this work, and so um, perhaps the benefit is also in terms of exposure, and that's what I'm hopeful for in terms of my business. But again, from an ontologue perspective, I mean, if there are things that um, we've developed, so for example, on the ODM, because I wanted broader exposure and because I wanted people that were uh, not necessarily OMG members but were active in semantic web or understood the logic to really be helping us make the right choices when we developed the standard. I sent email really, really broadly to every exploder I knew of um, where people were working on this stuff. Lisa? And, yes? Right. This is Peter Gratcher. Uh, I've got a question. So. A lot when I when I go look at the presentation itself, and there's a lot of uh, in in respect of ontology, there's a lot of usage of owl. So more or less like this this whole thing is owl focused. What's your perception currently on the WSM efforts out in Europe? Um, is that a competing standard? Uh, do you think that there will be some standard influences on the OMG level, or um, any any kind of opinions in that direction? Um, you're talking about the, the web services standards? 
Um, no, there's actually there's a WSMO, WSML. Oh, for the, are they related to the rules work? Uh, they, they're related to rules work, they're related to language work, they're related to web services work. I, they, they're specifying, they have been specifying uh, a framework around ontologies, so including like rule engine parts, um, business um, business process engine parts, um, data repository parts, and so forth. Right, right. I have seen some of that work. Yeah, if I may interject here, Ontolog actually is scheduled uh, has scheduled an October twentieth uh, panel discussion that would be uh, that, that would uh, revolve around the Semantic Web Services ontology standards. So stay tuned. We've already got a preparation page going. Uh, 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 Nicholas Roquet from JPL is moderating and. We've got uh, Michael Maximilian, uh, John Domingue from the UK Open University, and Mike Gruninger, uh, previously or uh, NIST now University of Toronto, uh, uh, among the people who are getting putting it together for us. So stay tuned. Yeah, yeah Michael I is still online. Didn't want to jump ahead. <laughs> well, from respect to, from the OMG perspective, so here's my view. Like what we did on the on the ODM, because I felt that the W3C and some of my friends in the in the European community and other places needed to have a say in what went on in the, our ODM spec. We just I just sort of broadly painted email out there and asked people for feedback. So we did try to reach out to get some of that feedback, even from non-members. With regard to the stuff that you're talking about, I have sort of just a vague familiarity because I have uh, folks that I know, like Deb McGinnis and Pat Hayes, who are much more up on what's happening on the sort of rules and semantic web services fronts. Um, I think the answer is going to be that the OMG uh, will need to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And we'll need to be interoperable with those things. Um, the OMG standards are, of course, going to necessarily be based around UML and, and that kind of thing. Um, and that will be the central point for OMG work. Having said that, I think that there's also um, a whole lot of value in the work that's going on in the W3C, which is why I sort of pay to be a member of both organizations and keep a foot in each camp. Um, so, and I, and I think that bridge um, is a really strong one and becoming stronger and that I'm certainly not the largest member of both organizations. I know Sun, IBM, and other, other people are trying to create the same bridge. So, yeah, I'm certain it'll happen. Yeah. Um, it's a matter of how it evolves and who the players are and whether there are enough players that belong to both organizations or multiple organizations in order to help bridge the gap. Yeah, well, it's just a question if you had some exposure to that area. Um, I've heard about the standards, but I haven't reviewed them in depth personally. Okay, since, uh, since we are uh, running out of time, uh, let's take two more questions, and then we will give uh, a minute or two for Elisa to wrap up, and we will call it a day. Uh, two more questions? Elisa, you had a reference who's, who's to uh, Bob Smith, a heuristic engine. Mm -hmm. uh, could you expand on that just a minute? So uh, you mean for ontology analysis and that sort of thing? Correct. 
Okay, so we started out working on that, even even before, as a company, we got involved with the OMG stuff. Um, we have done a whole lot of work with Stanford Knowledge Systems Laboratory, some with Stanford Medical Informatics, and um, also one of my early founding board members was a gentleman called Bob Engelmore, who right. um, was really good friends with right. a guy called Ed Hovey at ISI. Mm -hmm. So we pulled... Um, resources from all of those different places to create our fledgling prototype for doing this kind of work. And now, as we're moving into away from Rose and into a Java Eclipse-based environment, we're starting to implement some of those capabilities in our own tool set. So um, it's non-trivial to do that stuff. We actually believe that no one algorithm can solve all problems, as you might imagine. So. Um, working down a variety of different paths, ranging from structural analyses of ontologies, looking at uh, how far apart uh, nodes are in a graph, looking at um, pattern matching in strings and in descriptions, looking at uh, stemming algorithms, all the kinds of things that you might expect from a statistical or structural perspective. And then um, from the knowledge representation and reasoning side, pulling in some slot and slot value alignment kinds of capabilities, which are uh, some of the things that, that Chimera and, and Prompt support. Um, using a reasoner to do some deductive closure over, over policies, those are the kinds of bits and pieces that we've been prototyping and pulling together. Um, as a business, we are not wanting to build our own reasoning engine if we can avoid it. Is so Pardon me? Is PyCalculus uh, being used in a, in a framework for your heuristic engine? Uh, we've looked at it. We haven't yet integrated anything that, that um, we think is uh, uh, valuable that other people have done yet to support that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's on the laundry list, mm -hmm. so we, we just haven't done anything with it to date. Thanks. Um, we use JTP primarily, but we're also using Racer, and we also use, um, we're starting to integrate a Fair Isaacs Blaze engine so that we can do more uh, analysis of sort of scientific results and formulas and values that are in people's ontologies or knowledge bases that are um, that uh, oriented in that way. Who are you uh, working with at Fair Isaacs? Paul Vincent. Okay, I know Paul. Yeah. Good. In fact, we're meeting Wednesday night next week for dinner. <laughs> Great. Small world. Oh, let me talk about small world. Since you're going to be meeting with the XMDR people, uh, we have on our uh, on our plan oh. a a panel discussion uh, that oh, would address on. the uh, the question raised by Brand Neiman uh, of Psycop uh, as to how we as an industry could move from the XML, uh, XML metadata standards into ontology-based standards for semantic interoperability. So going all the way maybe from 111.79 to uh, common logic. So when you uh, see uh, Bruce Bachmeier and company, uh, let's try to get some dates and let's put that session together. I've already got uh, people like, uh, well, where else? Uh, uh, 
uh, Jim Handler, and uh, I've spoken to uh, Steve Ray, who would be happy to participate in such a session. Um, I will do what I can to poke at Bruce. <laughs> I don't know how effective I am at doing that. Um, he has a mind of his own, but um, he has uh, gone out of his way to be kind to me and, and is actually my sponsor for the trip to Toronto for that liaison meeting. So um, I will poke at him and see what I can do. Great. Thanks. And Peter, Great. this is Brand, Brand Neiman Sr. I've been in discussions with... Um, the editor of the ISO 11179 standard at the uh, Department of Labor, and uh, he's expressed interest in participating as well. Cool. Okay, is this like a mock profit? No, no. This is, and I've just momentarily blanked on his name. Just a minute. There's so many names in my data bank right now. I'll uh, get it for you. It's, uh, he's just, uh, just a minute here. Why am I blanking on that name? So uh, is it Ray Gates or Dan Gilman, one of those guys? Gilman, Dan Gilman. He has approached us uh, with interest in, in having this dialogue uh, about that standard in relationship to the federal data reference model and, uh, and its evolution to include semantics, etc. So and this came about by uh, several people leading data architects in the government who participate in the data reference model saying that, yeah, we really need to clarify um, the, uh, the, role, the role of that and its evolution uh, into the semantic uh, standard community, I guess is the way to put it. Peter's term, nothing ever goes away. Uh, it, hopefully it evolves in the direction of convergence. Great. Maybe Friend, this is Pat Heinig. Isn't uh, Dan Gilman is the chairperson of the L8 committee, which is the ISO 11179 technical committee for ISO IEC? Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, He's the chair of the current chair of L8. Of, yeah. Of, yeah, which is is 11179. Yeah. Anyway, he's 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 emerged as a point person. Uh, with regard to that standard that wants to engage in the dialogue. So we, we definitely want to include him in, in, in the panel, and maybe we could make yeah. this an ontolog psychop joint activity. Yes. Uh, with, with your permission. Peter, please remind me. I will uh, send you his email, and we'll uh, start including him in our distribution. Well, from an EPA standpoint also, um, on the, the XB... Uh, what was it XBDR? What was the thing, Alyssa? XMDR. Um, XMDR. Um, Larry is working with NIST. Larry Fitzwater here um, is working with NIST to sponsor that work. And Bruce Bargmeyer, who was the former LA chair, um, could could very that would be very profitable too, as they look at the ontological parts of of uh, one eleven seventy nine. Um, there, there is there is a there's both a schema and an ontology for 111.79 at uh, the xmdr.org website. Right. Um, Kevin Keck, I think, is the actual person who did the ontology development piece. Yes. And we have talked with him and outreach to him uh, in connection with the June 13th public forum on the data reference model. And then Peter uh, followed up and met with uh, Kevin and Bruce and the others 
working on the XMDR, so and, and included a couple of slides uh, that they provided in his June 13th presentation that's posted in what we call the DRM wiki, right. DRM public forum wiki. Right. Great. So I, this has been a great discussion, but we have to wrap up. So back to you, Alyssa, maybe take a couple of minutes uh, and wrap up. Well, so I, I think in terms of the ODM and, and what we're developing around it and capabilities that people are going to be implementing to, to leverage it, the answer is stay tuned. But, um, but it's happening. It's emerging, and I think it could fit nicely with some of the work that's going on in the um, semantic interoperability community of practice in some of these other organizations. I mean, it, it seems clear to me that bridging these gaps is important, that there's a lot of information that people have in their organizations developed around the um, UML technologies and others, and that the more we can do to help leverage a lot of those assets, the better off we will be. Um, one closing thought on the Java programming front. Um, I have done a lot of training with guys at HP, for example, who are Java programmers. And the one cautionary tale I would offer is that I'm not convinced Java programmers understand the meaning of the term inheritance. So you just have to be really careful when you work with them to make sure that they understand what you mean and that you don't mean having a class of common parameters that you can grab from at will um, and inheriting that to a broader concept. Um, but aside from that, this has been a tremendous opportunity to talk with all of you. And um, I appreciate feedback and would encourage anyone who's interested to contact me and we can um, talk more at length. So on behalf of the Ontolog community, let me thank Alyssa once again for her very uh, nice presentation of this momentous work. And uh, we look forward to working with her and to talk to her a lot more. Uh, again, this is the Ontolog Forum. Uh, it's September the 8th, year 2005. Uh, Alyssa Kendall speaking at our monthly invited speaker presentation session. Thank you, Alyssa, and thank you, everybody else, for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been recorded, and I'll be posting it later in the evening today. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much. Have you thought of making it a...